Looking for a foreign language program that will revolutionize your students' vocabulary knowledge and their understanding of grammar? How about a program that teaches critical thinking skills, too? Look no further than Memoria Press's Latin curriculum. Students of all ages can use these Latin study programs. Give your students the gift of Latin today. To order, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next order by using the coupon code LPR20. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. The Christian response to widespread tragedy, fear and panic, has always been to, well, number one, repent, and number two, pray. Why does that response today garner such antagonism from our progressive culture, and why can the church not only face death herself, but also urge others to face it as well when it's an undeniable fact of everyday life? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin on this Thursday, April the 2nd. We're going to talk about the church and the reality of death. Joining us to do so, Dr. Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Faith and Freedom, and author of a recent column for First Things titled Deaths Delayed. Dr. Truman, welcome back to Issues Etc. Great to be here. The Christian response has historically been to widespread tragedy, repentance, and prayer. Why? Well, I think it's part of the the overall Christian view of the world that we understand uh, illness, suffering, the signs of a world out of joint, and ultimately that speaks to the fact that this world is is fallen. It's it's not the way it was designed to be as a result of the fall of humanity uh, into sin. So it's not unsurprising that at a time when we, we face great suffering, when we're faced with the, you know, to some extent, imminent reality of death in a way that we can't ignore, that a Christian would instinctively think about a prayer and repentance as a response to that. Why does that response, at least of late, provoke such antagonism from our progressive culture? Well, I think there are a number of reasons for that. So, uh, to put the most charitable spin, I suppose, on some of the responses to those who call for, for prayer and repentance, one might say that they perhaps misunderstand exactly what Christians think of prayer as doing, in that you know, no Christian that I'm aware of thinks that, that prayer is, is a substitute for action, as if we're engaged in some kind of zero-sum game, where if you, if you pray that you won't get a, a disease, you shouldn't take any practical steps to avoid getting the disease. So I think for some it's a misunderstanding of what Christians are calling for. One might look at it in a more deeply theological way and say there's something uh, in, in, inside all of us that doesn't like to think that we are going to be held to account for our actions. We don't like to feel that we are beholden or responsible to another. So of course any call for repentance on that front reminding us of the fact that we do need uh, ultimately to answer for our actions is going to go against the grain of of human nature as it now stands. We don't like to think of ourselves as as being accountable. So I think you've got sort of probably all points in between. It's probably a sliding scale between those two. Why should we Christians refrain from speculating about God's purpose in allowing things like a global pandemic? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I think uh, one of the obvious reasons for that is, 
you know, if we, if we look at a pandemic and say, yes, this is terrible, this is evil, this is not the way it should be, we look at the Bible and we see similar things happening in the Bible. There are plagues in the Bible. There are sudden deaths in the Bible. There are things that occur in the Bible that we would regard as, as not as they should be. But the Bible presents a variety of, of reasons for those. You know, if you go back to the Exodus from Egypt, clearly the account of the Exodus from Egypt, the plagues visited against the Egyptians, we're given a very specific reason for those. They're essentially designed to break the spirit of Pharaoh and the Egyptians so that he releases the people uh, of Israel. If you move to the New Testament in the book of Acts, we have the the example of Ananias and Sapphira who withhold some money that they're supposed to give to the church and they're struck dead. So in those cases we might say the account given of the evil event, the sad event, is definitely connected to matters of sin and rebellion against God. But that's not always the case in the Bible. There's the man born blind in the Gospel of John and when the disciples say, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind and Jesus kind of rebukes the disciples at that point and says, neither this man nor his apparent sin. This, this was so that the glory of God could be manifested. And then when we look at the book of Job, even, even more mysterious still, it's, it's really difficult when you read the book of Job to, to probe the depths of what's going on there. All of that is to say when we're confronted by evil in the present day, we should not indulge in the, the automatic response that, that Job's comforters indulge in and that is because evil thing a has happened therefore this is judgment against a particular person a particular nation a particular people's sin the bible simply doesn't allow us to move simplistically from uh, an evil event to a, a monocausal explanation is there a secularist version of such christian speculation Oh, yeah, I think uh, you, you don't have to go very far on the Internet at some of the, the conspiracy theory sites to see that you don't have to be a, a Christian to engage in this kind of speculation. I mean, when the, when the virus first emerged, of course, President Trump sort of uh, hinted at it being you know, part of a democratic hoax at the time. Others have speculated that it you know, was developed by China in order to tank the Western economy. So I think we, we do have secularist equivalents, secularist explanations for the coronavirus that, that attempt to explain it purely in terms of this world, but also involve a high degree of speculation about what's really behind it. Do secularists often substitute, say, history for God when they talk about ending up on the right side of history? Oh, yeah. I think uh, you know, if, if a secularist wants to say to a Christian, oh, you're, you're talk about punishment for sin, that the plague is a punishment for sin, it's a rhetorical way of trying to give this plague some kind of transcendent significance that also bolsters your own position. I think that the secularist equivalent, for example, we, we saw this with the way sexual morality has been developed over the last few decades, culminating in, in gay marriage, the rhetoric surrounding gay marriage about you need to legalize this, we need the state to recognize this because that places you on the right side of history. That's implying a uh, an intention to the process of history that, really speaking, if you don't believe in God, uh, you, you shouldn't really uh, find there. It's, it's a rhetorical strategy, essentially, to try to provide some kind of scientific basis for what happens to be your opinion. Had you lived in 
Moscow in 1917 or Berlin in 1933, the right side of history might have appeared to be communism or Nazism. Well, we now know they were both very much on the wrong side of things in, in the long run. After the pandemic has passed, what should Christians learn from it? That's an interesting question. I think, uh, you know, there are numerous things that we can take away from this, from simple things. I mean, my wife and I, for example, have become much more aware of, of the, the older folk in church who sometimes can't get out to church anyway and the importance of, of contacting people within your church community just to keep them connected to the body. So it's made us much more aware of being in a sort of shut-in kind of state. It's made us more sensitive to the needs of others who are more permanently in that condition. I think on a more general level, one of the things we learn from a time like this is it's a reminder that death's inevitable for all of us. We now live in a world where we're able to, most of us are able to keep death at arm's length most of the time. That's not a luxury we have at this particular point. And it's a wake-up call to the church that one of the functions of the church is to prepare people to die. We need to be talking about heaven. We need to be pointing people towards the greater hope. We have lives of comparative affluence and luxury and ease in the West now, unlike many, many generations of the church and even many Christians alive today. And it allows us the luxury of, of not thinking about death in a way that I think when you look at Scripture, life is hard in Scripture, death is inevitable. And that needs to be, the, the church needs to take a long, hard look at itself and, and reflect on whether it has properly prepared people for death. Death is happening on a huge scale now, but it can happen in any congregation any day of the year. Somebody could be knocked over by a car. Somebody could have a heart attack. Pastors, congregations need to be thinking about how they're preparing their communities to face death, whether it hits on the grand scale of a plague or the deeply personal micro scale of a bereavement in a family. You say that modern Western culture has tried valiantly to domesticate and marginalize death. Go into some detail. What do you mean? Yeah, I think it's interesting to look at how death functions in, in modern society, that by and large we have, we have placed it physically at a distance from ourselves. Churches no longer have graveyards outside them. You know, I don't go to church walking past the grave of my father. So there's a sense in which we've geographically distanced death. People go away to places to die. They go to hospices. They go to hospitals to die. Very few young people, say under the age of 40, have actually seen a dead body. That would not have been the case in years past. So we've gone out of our way to push death, if you like, to the sort of the, the geographical, the periphery of our vision. At the same time, culturally, what's interesting is we've moved death in a cartoonish way to the center of our entertainment. Where, when we, we see death most commonly now is in the sort of cartoonish variety, in a Quentin Tarantino movie or something like that. We turn death into a, a kind of form of entertainment. Uh, it's a very interesting contrast to ancient Greece. So if you look at Greek tragedy, all of the terrifying stuff happened off stage. Death was not portrayed on stage. It happened off stage. And in some sense, that was done because they understood death was much closer. They understood the power of death. And so they didn't make a, a cartoon out of it, so to speak. It was an unspeakable thing that was ever present. 
we've made it a totally speakable thing that's always absent. And that, I think, is part and parcel of how we have, we have conned ourselves into thinking death isn't very serious. It's a cartoon on the TV. Oh, and it's very far from me anyway. It's never going to put its fingerprints on my life. What did previous generations know about death that we are trying to forget? I think previous generations knew that death was a regular part of everybody's life. Now, everybody just dies the once. We know that. But I think the, the familiarity with death, whether it was stillborn children, whether it was somebody dying of an illness as a young or middle-aged person, people were much more familiar with death. It was much closer to them. And therefore, it was much harder to, to push the margins, as I, I mentioned in my previous question. The inevitability of death was was an ever-present reality in life. And I think that has an effect on, on how we think about life. I, I mentioned a few moments ago, you know, going, I don't go to worship in a building where I walk past the graves of my ancestors. It must have been a very different emotional experience going to worship when you walk past the grave of, of your father or your grandfather or perish the thought that the grave of one of your children. Death, I think, was... I wouldn't say it was accepted as part of life, but it was known that it was there and it was coming for you. That's something we kind of distract ourselves from today. Why is it the church's task to confront people with the reality and the inevitability of death? I think it's part of the, the gospel message. It's appointed to man once to die and then to, to the judgment. So I, I think if, if the church is not reminding people of the reality of death, and if the church is not pointing people to the resurrection of Christ as the answer to death, then the church is failing abysmally in its job. There are many other things that the church does. We, we're supposed to be a loving community. We care for each other. We care for each other's material needs. We care for those outside. But above all, the central message, the central doctrinal dogmatic message of Christianity is about the death and resurrection of Christ, which points us to our own death and resurrection as well. What happens when the church shirks that responsibility and instead, as so many churches do, takes up the task of distracting people from death? I'm inclined to say, put it in an extreme form, one might say it ceases to be the church at that point. It simply becomes another form of worldly entertainment. That's what the world does. The world distracts people from death. That is not what the church is to do. And to the extent that the church does that, to that extent the church is merely mimicking the pattern of behavior in the world. You write, it is the task of the church to fight not so much against physical plagues which come and go, but rather against that which Lezik Kolakowski dubbed the age of analgesics. Why did you say this? Yeah, I think that the it behooves every, the church in every generation to look at the particular ways that the society and culture that surround it have distorted reality. And I think the way we have distorted reality today, the primary way is, we might say, we've dulled pain. What do I mean by that? You know, the dulling of physical pain is not a bad thing, but I mean it, what I mean here is we have taken away the fear of death, not by proposing an answer to death, but by pretending it doesn't happen and by providing a whole host of, of, sort of cultural painkillers, if you like, that make us feel good in the present. 
whether it's TV programs and entertainment, whether it's fashion, whether it's material possessions. There's a whole host of things that Leszek Kolakowski would, would call analgesics. They dull the pain of mortal existence, the inevitability of death. And I think the church's task in every generation is to see the, the worldly pathologies of its era and to stand as a witness against them. And the worldly pathologies of our era are these ones of, of, of analgesia, of distraction from the reality uh, and the inevitability of suffering and death. Why can the church not only face death herself, but also urge others to face it as well? Well, I think then it comes down, that comes down to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he, he, interestingly, he uses the present tense when he's addressing the Colossians. He's saying, you have been buried, you have been raised. It's actually not the present tense, of course, it's the completed past. It's, a, uh, it's the completed past tense that he's using. But he's essentially saying there, you can be confident in the present, and you need to behave a certain way in the present, because your death and your resurrection in Christ is no more guaranteed when it's actually happened in the future than now. And I think what the church needs to recapture is, is the fact that her mission is the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Christ. And because Christ has died, and because he has risen from the dead, as terrifying as death is as a prospect for us all, and I'm as frightened of death as the next man, we can yet have confidence that death is not the last word, that actually resurrection, resurrection, is the last word, is the answer to death. And the church knows that. The church needs to, to proclaim that. Dr. Carl Truman is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College, senior fellow at the Institute for Faith and Freedom, and author of a recent column for First Things titled Death Delayed. You can read it at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Truman, thank you. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Our series on the Lutheran Confessions picks up on the other side of the break. We're in the solid declaration of the formula of Concord. We're going to take up the subject of free will with Pastor Paul McCain, general editor of Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions. Stay tuned. Ain't no grave can hold my body down. Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred Music for the Season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, President of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. Casting Christ's net on the internet. You're listening to Issues Etc. Prayers for anxiety, assurance, forgiveness, plagues, sickness. 
The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for April contains more than 500 prayers that cover almost any situation. It's titled Lutheran Prayer Companion. Browse before you buy at issuesetc.org or find out more and purchase Lutheran Prayer Companion by calling Concordia Publishing House weekdays during regular business hours, 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for April, Lutheran Prayer Companion.